Joe, you had a dream last night, didn't you? Weird one? I think you did. Yeah, it was pretty strange. What happened? So I dreamt that my neighbor's cat came over and, like, coughed off a hairball all over our kitchen floor. It was, like, the size of another cat. So I, I picked that up and threw it away, and then I ended up having sex with uh, Anne Hathaway. The Adam Crowley Show on ESPN Pittsburgh. You know who I hope takes over the Pitt Athletic Department? The Aliquippa School Board. Like, that's where we need them. If you want coaching changes, you want the Aliquippa School Board, and maybe that will help the Pitt basketball program. They would have fired Kevin Stallings after the loss to Navy. Those folks. We'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you miss Chris Harlan. Uh, I'm sure that'll be podcasted. Tim Benson for Adam Crowley. And I want to get some reaction going, and we've got a bunch online. I read a whole passel of tweets from people earlier about the um, Aliquippa School Board forcing Mike Semanic out despite being 200 games above 500. I want somebody to defend it. I haven't heard a single person give me a decent defense of why this is okay. Not just why is it okay in the isolated it's a school board decision in Western Pennsylvania, but why is it okay on the macro level? Why is it okay that this is just a shrunken down story where a bunch of sports talk show hosts and writers are kicking around in Pittsburgh outlets when you damn well know that if the roles were reversed, this would be something that would be like all over dead spin, all over awful announcing, all over Bleacher Report, ESPN, CNN, MSNBC, it'd be all over the place. White school district forces out successful black coach. Rumored that school district, school board employee's son will take over program. Are you kidding me? Like, that would be swept under the rug, would it? Really? Why is it okay? Well, why is this okay? It's you know, like when SL Price went on the other station, and a lot of what he said I agreed with. A lot of what he said I thought was um, complimentary towards Semantic and sympathetic to his situation. But the kicker for me, the point I couldn't get over, the quote I couldn't get past, is when he told the host on the radio station, "Well, maybe it's just time. Maybe we're just at the point where Aliquippa should have a black coach." No, they should have the best guy for the job. And I'd suggest the guy who has 13 trips to the championship game, six titles in a state, and just went there last year, is still the best guy for the job. You know, it's like we we pretend that this is a two-way street all the time, and it isn't when it comes to optics about situations like this. Even the explanations are bogus. Even if the similar explanations had been thrown out there in a reverse scenario, no one would buy it. So why are we buying it here? Why, why is any of this okay? Defend that to me or defend the, even the micro level of what happened specifically at Aliquippa. 412-922-2874. Okay. Uh, Jesse Marshall coming up to talk some pens here. Jamie Alexiak in the previous hour. And uh, there's plenty to discuss with the Penguins. We'll get to that shortly. But I noticed this shortly before we went on the air. 
The Pittsburgh Steelers sent out a tweet. Well, I shouldn't say the Steelers. Teresa Varley from Steelers.com sent out a tweet. And uh, it's just it was a bunch of photos from the Dapper Dan, I guess. And one of them is Art Rooney II and John Stallworth and Kevin Colbert and Mike Tomlin and Bill Cower. And she tweeted one out. This is, well, I don't know, 24 hours ago. She tweeted out a photo of Bill Cower and Mike Tomlin. The two former, the one former Steeler coach, current Steeler coach, standing together, big smiles on their faces. Kumbaya, isn't this nice? And I'm sure that's the expectation that Teresa had that she would get from Steelers fans hither and yon. That everybody would love to see this, right? Oh, <laughs> guess again. So, I made the mistake of going into Teresa's comments to see what Steeler fans had to say about this photo of these two guys together. Can I give you just a couple of examples? Can I give you a smattering? Bill was better. Please tell me Cower took the job back. Pretty cool. Omar Epps got a photo with Bill Cower. I'm going to stop right there for just a second. Can, can we let the Omar Epps stuff go, please? I mean, it was funny when he first got hired, but let's understand something. Now, in light of how successful they've each been in recent years, I would think that Omar Epps would be the one that would be happy with the compliments that he's confused for Mike Tomlin. Here's another one. Mike Tomlin supported Hillary, so he's far from one of the best. Next one, LOL. Actually, I didn't even know it was Tomlin until after I tweeted it. I like Cower. I'm just going to ignore that side of the photo. Shame in Tomlin. I think they mean shame on Tomlin, not shame in Tomlin. But, yes, shame on him for posing for a photo with Bill Cower. Who is he to pose for a photo of Bill Cower, a guy whose record is quite similar and has basically the same resume? Yeah, what a jerk he is. This one, I uh, followed that one up. Maybe Tonkin can learn a thing or two from Cower. Yes, Tonkin, Coach Tonkin. It's the Coach Tonkin press conference each and every Tuesday right here on ESPN Pittsburgh. This guy writes, hey, look, the coach and the cheerleader. And then another one, because I think you get the drift at this point. Then another one comes in. Look at the one coach who won and the other coach who won with all of his players. Although, I will point out that by the time 2010 rolled around, the second time that Tomlin got to the Super Bowl, that roster was almost entirely his. And I will point out, I think i got to go back and double-check the numbers on this. I, I, I'm pretty sure they either came out exactly the same or even fewer players were on the Super Bowl-winning team for Tomlin against the Cardinals than there were two years out from Cower with Knowles players. Like, no, no this, this is the... All right, okay, I'm going to calm down here before I just lose my friggin' mind on this. Because it's funny, whenever you stick up for Mike Tomlin, you're accused of being an apologist. Whenever you criticize Tomlin, you're accused of being a hater. It, it, he's become so polarizing, and I wrote about this at the end of the season after the loss against Jacksonville for the trip. He is it's one of the most read things I've written since I've been at the trip. And it's a paradox when you talk about Mike Tomlin. You can't talk about Tomlin positively without everybody painting you out to be just a blind supporter of his and a terrible towel-waving fan, and you can't be critical of him without being a hater and maybe racist. There's no in-between on this. But the bottom line is, there's a lot of in-between on Tomlin. But one thing that just blows my mind is the revisionist history. 
the the selection that we have in our mind of how we treated Bill Cower when he was the head coach. I know. I did post-game shows when Bill Cower was the head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers. I know your phone calls then were exactly the same as they were for Mike Tomlin, as they are for Mike Tomlin. He just won with Knowles players. What is he going to be when he doesn't have a defense instead of Tomlin? Now, what is he going to be when he doesn't have a quarterback? He should do more with the talent that he has. Now that we're removed from it, and Tomlin hasn't been to a Super Bowl since 2010 and hasn't won one since 2008, you people act like Bill Cowher never lost a game. You Steeler fans act like Bill Cowher was Chuck Knoll on steroids. Like, the revisionist history that we have as a fan base is unbelievable. The criticisms that were levied at Cowher were so frequently similar, downright akin to what we have with Tomlin, and we pretend like that wasn't the case. You know, if you want to make Roethlisberger the differential, if you want to make Roethlisberger the difference maker in this, I get it. Cowher never had a Roethlisberger for the early part of his career. Tomlin had Roethlisberger throughout his entire career. Okay. But the Steelers were still, for many years, including 1994, the best team in the AFC, and they didn't get to the Super Bowl enough, and we all said so. So, like, for me to see that feed, it was just mind-numbing. Like, I felt like I was in a wormhole. I just kept reading down, down, down. Like I said, I could have given you 50 more. But they're all the same, and we forget. We're, we're such prisoners of the moment, we forget what used to make us angry. <laughs> like, Or you remember, and you're just applying it differently, and distance makes the heart grow fonder. I talked about this yesterday with the James Harrison thing. Like, we're so anxious to have the prodigal son returns home story. We're not given enough distance. Distance makes the heart grow fonder. Time heals all wounds. And I said this to Arthur Motes when he was on. We were talking about that. Give me some distance and time then. Maybe there's too much distance and too much time for us to see Cower and Mike Tomlin photographed together because we just lose all perspective. And you can agree or disagree with me on that, too. 412-922-2874. Last point here before we get to Jesse Marshall and talk Penguins after the commercial break. And that is uh, Pitt last night. And i got to put this in the context of me watching Syracuse have this incredible comeback against North Carolina, get to the point where they could have tied the game, and they're seven foot two, un- like indescribably unathletic center gets a long rebound after a bad shot miss and for some reason puts his back to the basket beyond the free throw line and puts the ball on the floor and North Carolina takes the ball away and the next thing you know they end up winning and Syracuse loses at home and a game that really could have helped them potentially get in the tournament then I watched the pick game in front of what was it 2200 I think they counted the same guy 2200 times but honestly, you know, now that I, I'm being sarcastic, if you look at the fan, the crowd itself was actually a little bit bigger than I thought it was going to be. And you know why? Because I think Pitt fans thought this is the only time all year we're going to get a chance to see a win. And they they should have won it. They were good enough to win it. But in just unbelievably typical fashion for this basketball team, what did you see? Guy misses a slam dunk? Foul in a three-point shooter? 
you know, I'm waffling a bit on Kevin Stallings because the right move is to fire him. The, the right move is to fire him because in two years what we've seen is that the situations that he have been ge- that he has been given, they are worse than they needed to be. That team last year, okay, didn't have a point guard. But you returned four starters from a tournament team. That team doesn't have to be as bad as it was last year. Same thing this year. For as bad as that team is, it doesn't have to go winless in the ACC when the ACC is a lot softer at the bottom than it has been in other years. There were winnable games on that schedule. They could have won either Syracuse game. They blew a huge lead against Boston College. Could have won the Florida State game. Sure as hell should have beaten Wake Forest. You get Wake Forest at home, I don't care who you are, you should win the game. So in the two years that you've had him, things have been way worse than they needed to be. And next year, regardless of how much better it's going to be, I don't think it can be as good as it should. So for logical reasons, I think he should be out. The problem is, if you thought things were a mess when he was handed the keys from Jamie Dixon, how much of a mess do you think the next guy is getting in? And if things don't go better for this AD, then she's going to be out soon, especially if the Aliquippa School Board takes over. She's going to be out soon. And then the coach who's been handed the keys to this mess is going to have a new boss. And I don't think people are going to have the patience that we pretend that we will for the next guy. Like, how many buyouts do you want to have to go through? The buyout for the new guy? The buyout for Stallings? The buyout for the new guy to replace the new guy? You know, and I, I kind of said this yesterday. Like, you know, King Rice still has his job. Danny Hurley still has his job. Some of the Some of the names that people wanted for the pit gig before it went to Stallings are still where they were at the time. Now, they may not be after next season, but there's always going to be a Danny Early. There's always going to be a King Rice. or I know Keats moved on, but that's another name that people wanted. That's another example. Those guys are going to be there. You're always going to have the 14-seed coach that upsets a three-seed that's been 26-5 and five in the Midwest Athletic Conference that, oh, wow, well, hey, this guy's good. Let's get him. He's the hot up-and-comer. You're always going to have that guy. So, like, I don't think the pre- the precedent doesn't have to be there to say, okay, we've got to fire Stallings to bring in Danny Hurley to give Danny Hurley a crap situation to overpay to get him to come here, and then when the new AD is here in three years after Heather Like is bounced or after she needs to fire somebody to hold on to her, her job – because basketball is still lagging behind, you're buying him out too. When he could be in a better situation. Like, no matter what happens, a new coach hired after 2019 is going to be in a better situation than coming in next year. It's a mess now. It's going to be a real mess next year. Unless you sort of let some of these guys find their way, the program looks like it's at least moving and then you can hand a better situation to who you deem to be a better coach. I know everybody's out for blood and they're mad and they didn't like the process. And a lot of that comes from this too. They just didn't like the process of how he got here in the first place. But just be careful. You don't wind up being Temple 
of Big East football in hoops for the ACC, like Temple was during the time, where they're just churning over coaches and they're two and nine or five and six every year. Don't let Pitt basketball become what it was before Howland got here and before the Pete opened. It's too fun of a sport to have active in this community. Talk to Jesse Marshall next about the Pens. We come back. Brian Dumoulin later on as well. Plus, the Leslie Jones meltdown on Pierre Maguire. SNL attacks NBC's Olympic coverage. This is uh, incest on the highest network TV level. Or cannibalism, however you want to phrase it. Whatever. They're both disgusting. Tim Benson for Adam. Why are we playing the money song? They're trading for guys, not signing guys. You're talking about moving cap money around? I just like the song. I thought maybe you were just excited baseball-wise about future Hall of Famer Corey Dickerson coming to the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates. Poor man's J.D. Martinez, as they say. And they are poor. Who's saying that? When you say they say, they who's, say the, who's the they no, there? they say it. They, they being the Pirates? Like, did Bob Nutting actually come out and say, this is a poor man's J.D. Martinez? Because that would make me laugh. He may have. He should. He's not poor, though. I think we all know that by now. Tim Benson for Adam Crowley. Pleased to be joined by Jesse Marshall from The Athletic right now. Jesse joins me uh, to talk about the Penguins. They approach the trade deadline. Uh, Jesse, we had uh, Jamie Alexiak on earlier. We got Brian Dumoulin coming up a little bit later on. Let's start with those two guys. What do you think about the jobs that they've done of late as the Penguins have become resurgent here in recent weeks and, well, going on months now? Yeah, I think Brian Dumoulin's been the most consistent defenseman the Penguins have had probably for two years, Tim. I think if you go back and you look at how beat up the defense court got last year, I mean, obviously, you know, they lost Chris Letang, you know, Trevor Daly was down for a while, Justin Schultz was down for a while. Brian Dumoulin is just a rock, just an absolute rock. Uh, you throw him out there every single night against the best the other team has to offer. Uh, he takes all the tough deployments, uh, takes all the tough minutes alongside Chris Letang, and I think that he provides a crucial element to that pairing and his stay-at-home style, um, his gap control. I, I think, you know, I think the Brian Dumoulin highlight of the season for me, Tim, was uh, watching him go one-on-one with Connor McDavid and proven to be one of the only defensemen in the National Hockey League this season to be able to keep him in front of him. So, uh, on Jamie Oleksiak, um I don't know how much more they can do this, Tim. The Penguins can as far as, you know, finding these defensemen that are just not playing well at all and, and completely reigniting their career. Uh, you could go all the way back to Matt Niskin and Ian Cole, Jamie Oleksiak, Justin Schultz. Uh, you know, the Penguins are like the Ray Searage for bad pitchers to make a baseball comparison. They just bring these guys in and completely rehabilitate their game. And, um, you know, once, once or twice is a coincidence, but they've just been doing it too long now for it to be, uh, for it to be anything like a coincidence. But this, is, this is real stuff that they're able to do here. I think it's a testament to Sergey Gonchar and Jacques Martin. Yeah, largely I agree with just about all those points, Jesse. Uh, for Dumoulin in particular, when you point out the highlight against McDavid, I, I think maybe one of his best games occurred on uh, the day before Valentine's Day against Ottawa where he had a couple points. He was a plus four, logged 21 minutes. I thought he was really good in that game. And as far as the defensemen go, I guess that, like you talked about with Alexiak, sort of the rehab projects for guys in the blue line, um, that ties into the thinking at the trade deadline, potentially in one regard. If they were to move Hunwick's salary to someone else, even though he's maybe starting to play a little bit better now that he's healthy again, if they move him, they might have to bring in a seventh or an eighth, depending on how you want to define it. They might have to do it one more time. 
They might have to. And what's interesting, I think, is that I thought myself personally, Tim, that Chad Ruedel did a great job last year when they needed him in a pinch. Uh, I thought he was phenomenal. I thought he was phenomenal earlier this season uh, when they needed him in a pinch. Uh, and now you do have to babysit a defenseman like that, Tim, right? You can't, you don't want to throw him out against the team's top line. You don't want to start him all the time in his defensive zone. You have to be very careful when you put him on the ice. Uh, but if you if you can manage those deployments, uh, and I think Mike Sullivan has a proven track record of being able to do that, I still think he can give you a little bit of something. Uh, but the depth there is concerning. And if you and if you make a deal that jettisons a guy like a Matt Hunwick, you're definitely going to have to supplant that depth somewhere because I, I don't know that they feel comfortable going into the uh, playoffs with really just seven defensemen that have any semblance of NHL uh, playoff experience at all. Uh, time has told us that, that injuries are going to happen and um, that we should come to expect them. So I think that that's, that's definitely a concern for Jim Rutherford as he, as he evaluates the option of trading Matt Hunwick overall. Jesse Marshall from the Athletic Talking Pens with us. Are you Team Broussard? Are you uh, Team Grabner? Uh, team Pajot? Where are you on the wish list for Penguin fans at the trade deadline? I can't help but think what a line that features Carl Hagelin and, and Michael Grabner would do to another team. Um, that's just too much fun for me to want to pass that up. Uh, he's the cheapest of all the options. Um, I'm sure that the New York Rangers are going to be a little bit more stern, Tim, when it comes to dealing with the Penguins than maybe they would with a Western Conference team. Uh, so I do think that the asking price specific to Pittsburgh will probably be a little bit higher than it would be for anybody else. Uh, but you could also acquire him vis-a-vis the way you did Mark Streit uh, the prior year when you go through a third party to get the deal done. So um, I just, for me, the style of hockey this team plays, um, I know that there's still a little bit of a hole, a big hole at that center position. Uh, but the way Grabner is scoring goals right now, Tim, you just might as well get while the getting's good. Uh, you don't know how much longer that's going to last. I know his numbers are boosted a little bit by the empty netters that he scored, but um, just imagine him playing on a line with, with Carl Hagelin and the havoc that would ensue from that. That'd be too much fun to miss out on. Well, the penalty killing, too. If you're talking about havoc, I could see those two at the points uh, attacking another team's power play, creating a lot of havoc, to use that word. Absolutely, and the Penguins' structure on the penalty kill, Tim, is they overload where the puck goes. Uh, so it's very aggressive. They're constantly putting pressure on those point men, and they don't want to allow the opposing team's power play to establish elongated possessions and elongated periods of controlled time. So, um, you know, we I think in Pittsburgh know all too well what Michael Grabner can do shorthanded. Is he's, he's done it to the Penguins more often than not. So, um, you know, I, I, I just, at the end of the day, don't know that I could make peace with um, you know, emptying the, the, the cupboard itself, Tim, is pretty much bare now. Uh, and, and Daniel Sprong, I think, is going to be a guy who's going to score, you know, 25 goals at the National Hockey League level. I think he's got things to figure out before that. And I just, I don't, I, I, I'm all in for the third cup. Don't get me wrong. But uh, if you have to sacrifice a guy like a Hunwick to get Broussard, you're fixing a problem and then creating another one at the same time. When it comes to getting both, because I think that's more possible than some people are giving it credit for, because if they were to figure out a way to move out the salaries of Sherry and Hunwick, maybe not even to those teams, but in separate deals, kind of do a Pirates thing where they send out cash with picks as incentive, the math almost comes out the same. It's 6.1 for those two, and it's 6.6 for Broussard and Grabner, prorated, of course, on both ends. Yeah. Um, So it's possible, and... I would see that as an upgrade, and there are some out there that say you're subtracting too much from the current roster that way, but the only hole, you are creating a hole for a seventh defenseman, and maybe you're replicating a lot of Haglin with Grabner, 
but I still see upside to bringing in the both of them and moving out the other two. Would you agree? I, I would. I think that if, if you were to create a perfect scenario, Tim, that would be it. I also think money-wise, Ottawa's going to be a little bit more open to retaining some of that Broussard salary. I don't think they'll do quite as much. Uh, like, for example, Tim, right now, Dion Finos retained salary is the third highest paid defenseman on Ottawa's roster. I don't think that they're going to do that. I don't, I don't think they're going to take a Finos-type hit the way they did when they made that trade with the Kings. Uh, but I still think that you could talk them into keeping a little bit, especially if you're pinched on numbers and you need that that end of it to come to make the trade happen. Um, so I still think there's room, wiggle room there for negotiation. But if you could pull off both of those players, um, I don't know that there's a team in the National Hockey League that's going to be able to beat the Penguins, and I would put Tampa Bay, um, I would put them in that, in that bucket too. I don't think that there's going to be anybody that's got the speed to do it. Um, you know, I, we talk, it's funny because we talk about the Penguins needing a seventh defenseman, but the six guys they have are pretty good, Tim. And if they stay healthy, uh, you know, they, they all, six of them, do their job. Everybody's got a role. Everybody's got the freedom to skate and make plays. Uh, this team is just such a nightmare to deal with when they're forechecking as well as they are. And those two guys, Broussard uh, and Grabner, are both so good at that that it's just almost too good to be true as far as how they fit in with what the Penguins do. Yeah, and for people who bristle at the notion of moving Sherry, uh, you know, at first blush, I don't like the sound of it either. But at the same time, if they were to bring in Grabner, then you're talking about when healthy. If they were to enter the playoffs healthy, you're talking about wingers that are Hornquist, Kessel, Zar, and Haglin, Sherry, um, Grabner, and Rust. One of those guys is getting bounced down to the fourth line, and then you're maybe not dressing Kunakel, who's a good penalty killer, or you're maybe not dressing Rowney if you've acquired another center. Um, you know. You're kind of running out of wing space unless somebody is moved if you do bring in Grabner, right? Yeah, uh, right. And, and, and to your point about Connor Sherry, Tim, I think if you look at Connor Sherry and Brian Rustin and some of these players that we would assume you know, that are going to be available for the Penguins potentially to exit the team, Connor Sherry is the one that requires the most help. And what I mean by that is if you look at it, 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 sort of the, the advanced metrics, quote-unquote, at his, his shot rates and his scoring chance rates, um, when you take him away from Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin and some of those more talented guys, he struggles to do it on his own. Whereas a guy like Brian Rust, you put him on the fourth line and all of a sudden the fourth line's now clicking at the, at the best clip it has all season long. Brian Rust has the ability to create offense by himself in an environment where he doesn't have skilled player with players alongside him. But we've seen what he can do if you also put him alongside of again of Genny Malkin. So there's a little bit more versatility there for me. And I think when you look at Connor Sherry away from those top six guys, uh, he's not giving you that same result that a Brian Russ gives you. And to Michael Grabner's point, he, he operates the same way Russ does. He can create offense from just about anywhere on the lineup, no matter how you deploy him, no matter how you, no matter what ta- kind of talent you put him on the ice with. His sheer speed uh, is just such a nightmare for other teams to deal with that uh, he's able to create on his own as well. So I think if, if you're to weigh it out, uh, I think Sherry's the one that needs the most help, and I think would probably be the one that I, I think the Penguins would probably be most willing to sacrifice for that reason. Okay, so Jesse, let's wrap up this way then. If they do enter into the playoffs without acquiring Broussard or Grabner, let's say they get a fourth-line guy like a Peugeot or something like that, or Latestu or somebody to that effect, all right. So if that's the case, then how do you distribute the wingers amongst the four centers? Uh, well, I think that you've got lightning in a bottle as far as the, the Hagelin, Malkin, and Horquist line. So I wouldn't change anything there. 
And I know that Sidney Crosby's in a little bit of a less than glorious situation right now with who his wingers are, uh, but they're getting the job done. Uh, so it's hard to complain about what you've got out of that. I still would like to see Jake Denzel up there. Uh, I think a guy like a Dominic Simone, I, or even for that matter, Zach Aston Reese would look pretty good along Riley Sheehan. Uh, that, that's a tough line to play. I mean, Sheehan's been absolutely phenomenal the last couple of weeks. Uh, I think you give him a guy with size like an Aston Reese, I think you could really make that pan out. I think to what we said earlier, Tim, I take Brian Rust, I move him off that Malkin line uh, and, and kind of bump him down to, you know, potentially even boost, you know, assuming we bring in a Latestu or a Peugeot to give it even more of a boost to that fourth line, trying to get the Penguins a little bit closer to where they were in their last two cup runs. Um, the, the, the problem I have, Tim, is how they've distributed the lines or how Mike Sullivan has deployed the lines this season. The fourth line is getting uh, significantly less ice time than we've you know, become accustomed to under Sullivan. Uh, they have to fix that problem. The ability to roll four lines is one of the reasons that uh, you look back at game seven against Washington last year or game six against Nashville. When other teams are shortening that bench up, the Penguins aren't. And I, I think their goal should be to get back to that point to where they can relentlessly roll those four lines, maybe sprinkle in a guy like a Rust on that fourth line to give it that extra boost you need to feed it more minutes. I think that's ultimately what the goal is going to be. Okay, so to be clear then, if they do not make a major trade for Grabner or for Broussard, you've got Sid between Gensel and Sherry. You've got Malkin between Haglin and Hornquist. You've got Sheehan with uh, Kessel and ZAR, and then right. center X with Rust, and then some combination for the other wing of Reeves, Kunakle, and Rowney on a night-to-night basis. And I think it's gonna that would end up being Kunakal based on his ability to kill penalties. Okay, so then let me change it up a little bit on you and say if they do get Grabner, does Grabner go up top with Sid, and then Sherry gets bumped down? You have, yeah, I think so because if there's one thing we've learned over the course of the last year is that Sidney Crosby does well. Not really the last year, Tim. Really, his career. Sidney Crosby does not need the most skilled puck handlers or shooters in the world. He needs people that can speak to the game quickly. Right? That, that's why the connection between him and Jake Gensel was so uh, fast is because Jake Gensel thinks the game that way. Uh, and I think that if you give him a Grabner, uh, that's exactly what Sidney Crosby wants, is somebody that thinks the game at the speed that he does. Uh, and that kind of speed opens up so much space for a guy like Sidney Crosby. Look at, look at the benefit Malkin's gotten from Hagelin. And you give Sidney Crosby that same benefit, that guy that can go up there and just absolutely disrupt the other team, that's going to put Sidney Crosby on that same scoring pace, in my opinion, that Evgeny Malkin is on right now. So that's exactly what I would do. Jesse, thanks. Appreciate it as always. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Tim. All right, that is Jesse Marshall from The Athletic. Tim Benz in for Adam Crowley. I want to kick around some of those lines that we just talked about when we return. Also, uh, the Pierre Maguire interview during the women's game that has everybody mad, including Leslie Jones from Saturday Night Live. And... Uh, we will also hear from Brian Dumoulin, Pittsburgh Penguin defenseman. All that to come before six. Lots of hockey talk before we hit six. And then Adam joins us on his own show. It's always the best segment of the week because that's when I'm usually on. So we'll see if Adam can pick up the torch next. Get, get, get. Get, get. All right, Tom, do you have the... Uh, Pierre Maguire interview with uh, Gigi Marvin from Team USA, one of the Team USA women's hockey players who beat Canada yesterday. Was it this morning? Like in, what, like eleven o'clock start last night, something two o'clock in the morning or something. All right, whatever. So Team USA wins. 
And uh, I guess between the... I haven't heard this yet. So I, I, I actually intentionally didn't hear it because I just wanted to take it in live like Leslie Jones did from Saturday Night Live on NBC. She's been really active in the Olympic coverage, right? Wasn't she yelling at the figure skaters or something the other day? I, I didn't hear it with the sound up, but she seemed to be very much involved in commentary with his... Uh, Adam Rippin, is that his name? Yeah, they were doing some sort of commentary on the pairs or something like that. So she, I guess she's into this. But whatever. So the hockey game's going on. They get in between the second and third period, and Pierre's talking about uh, the women trying to get over the hump after they lost, and so she to the Canadians before, right? That was the tone of the question. Okay, let's let's hear it. You're one of the 10 ladies that experienced a disappointment in Sochi. What's going to be your message coming out here for the last 20 minutes? To stay in the moment. I mean, gosh, it, it's such a... We've endured so much. We persevered through so much. So there's so much character in our team. And it's just going to focus on what we can do and what we can control. And we're going to go out there and give everything we have. And um, we're going to focus on every single step of the moment and be in the moment. Excellent, Gigi. Thank you. Okay, so what's the big deal? Why is that a bad question? Why? What's so wrong with that? Here's how Leslie Jones responded to that on Twitter. Have the dump button ready because I might, I swear to God, I might read one of these accidentally. Okay, you ready? Are we ramped up? Is the dump button ready to go? Okay. F, a-hole, why the F would you ask her that right now in the middle of an effing game that she's playing right now? Thank you. Thank you for putting that in her mother bleeping head. You know what? Get your ass the bleep away from the hockey player. You know what? I swear to God. I swear to God. See, when I go, y'all lose your bleeping mind. What the bleep would you ask that for? Because it's pertinent. By the way, I want a sticker for that. There were some landmines there that I danced over. It's pertinent. That's why. So, like, you know, you do. It's it's Game Seven of the World Series. I know they only got to Game Four, but okay, fine. Game Four. Terry Francona in the dugout on Fox. I know they're up by like fifty runs against the Cardinals at the time. They're looking at a sweep. What should you not ask Terry Francona about the curse of the Bambino? There, can you finally get it done? Can you finally close the door? How is the team right now with that in the back of their mind? It was the same sort of thing. Like, oh, that's not inappropriate. Why is it inappropriate? Because she's a girl? Because we're going to hurt her feelings? Is that, again, this is like double standard stuff like we were talking about before. Ain't nobody reacting that way if that's a guy who's asked that question. Ain't nobody, because awful announcing here. Let me give you the write-up from awful announcing on it. Okay, hold on. Let me get to the top of the page here. NBC hockey analyst Pierre Maguire was interviewing USA forward Gigi Marvin during the second intermission of the USA-Canada women's gold medal game in Pyeongchang when he asked, and then they got the clip over there. Okay, so they played a clip, and then a little bit down further in the story. Maguire asking a question about the Sochi loss with Marvin and the USA about to enter the final minutes of the gold medal game wasn't received well on Twitter. Well, the question didn't seem to bother anyone more than NBC employee Leslie Jones. Um, and then they put in parentheses, especially with NBC pushing the Sochi theme to an extreme degree all night. It's a storyline. It's Red Sox-Yankees. It's Steelers-Patriots. It's Lakers-Celtics back in the day. They're trying to get as Knicks or Jazz versus the Bulls. It's trying to get over the hump. It's the story. That's why we cared. It's a rivalry. They're trying to... Beat their arch nemesis. It's a fair question. She didn't seem taken aback by it. Like, it's one of two things here that bothers me. Either it's a boy-girl double standard, 
where we spent how many years and now how many weeks specifically around the Olympics saying the girls are just as good as the boys and girl power and, you know, let's have Star Wars be all girls and let's do Ocean's Eleven with all girls and, you know, hashtag Me Too has changed all of us and it's a new world. It's a new day. The girls are just as good as the boys. Then, okay, let them be asked boy questions then. Because if a boy is asked that question, it doesn't. It's, it's a fart in the wind. No one even pays attention. So what? It was mean to ask the poor girl that question. Is that it? Or, and it might be both, maybe, and it's we've gotten to this point in journalism now. This is sort of the fake news thing that we talked about. Fake news has turned into not fake or real. It's I don't like that. I, I don't like that. I don't like that opinion. I don't like this news item. Uh, I don't like this question. It's fake news. Uh, th- that's That might be where this is born from. I don't want to hear it, so you're wrong for asking it. I get that all the time. At the Tomlin press conference, or, you know, if I ask an athlete after a games or something like that. Like, uh, who was getting it real bad this year? Jeremy Fowler. Jeremy Fowler was getting it real bad. Ah! <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why would you ask Le'Veon Bell that? Why? What? Why? Well, he got a good quote. And the funny thing is with Jeremy, there's other media members who were doing that to him because he got a quote. Like, I, I admit it. I didn't think to ask. And I was dumb. I was dumb for not asking because Lev is dumb enough to say it. And he did. And he is. And that was proof. Yeah, I'm going to hold out. Yeah, I might retire. Well, Jeremy, asked, he's got every right to answer the question, especially if the athlete's going to answer it. So, like, that, that's where this comes from. Oh, they were pushing it to such a degree. Oh, God, the shame. It's a storyline. They, ch- they chose to focus on it. You know, I, I got it really bad when I asked Tomlin. Um, it's funny because, boy, things turned, didn't they? Like, before, after the Packer game, after the uh, Bengal game, so it was before the Raven game, I asked him a question about whether or not the team had too much taken out of it going into the Patriots because they've had all these tough games and he had already looked ahead to the Patriots game and people got all snippy with me. Oh, how could you ask that? Because he brought it up. And then sure enough, what happens? The running backs tweeting the night before again about rematches and they lose and all I hear is, ow, Tomlin doesn't have his guys prepared. Ow. Why don't you guys call him out for it? Well, when I brought it up and they only had two losses, I was the devil for asking them. I cut you, God, some people. I mean, really. It's just we, we change our own narratives to fit our feelings and emotions at the time. We are so good at that. We are masters at that. We change our own emotions and feelings to fit the narrative we want to tell. And, and this is a perfect example. All right, uh, let's hear from Brian Dumoulin. I want to go over some of these lines that Jesse Marshall talked about. Here's Brian Dumoulin from practice today as the Penguins get ready to take on the Carolina Hurricanes tomorrow downstairs at 105.9 on the X. Knowing how many defensemen you've had to use over the course of the last two playoff runs, it's been at least eight in both years. Um, how stable do you guys feel as a blue line as the trade deadline approaches? Are you stable enough that you feel that perhaps the team can address other areas uh, as the trade deadline comes near? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, we've had... A solid uh, AD right now, and there guys that have been with us all year. And right now, it's uh, I mean, you look at guys uh, like Rudy haven't been playing, but he's when he's come in the, into the lineup for us, he's done a great job, and he's a guy that can play, and he's played for us a lot last year and this year too. So 
I mean, we have confidence in our group and all eight of us, and we know if time comes that all of us can get the job done. How much has Alexiak helped in that regard? A lot. I mean, he's a big body. He skates really well, and he's been playing really well for us. Uh, it's always good to have extra depth on D, and uh, being a lefty playing the right side is not always easy, and he's done a good job at it. In years before you got here, um, there were a lot of times where the trade deadline would roll around and there'd be questions about taking the new pieces and plugging them in effectively. Uh, in the past couple seasons, when new guys have come on board, the assimilation process has gone quite smoothly. Uh, Justin Schultz is an example of that. When Daly got here, Haglin, why has it been like that? And is Jamie the latest example thereof? Yeah, I look at those guys and... I mean, it wasn't necessarily right at the deadline that we got those guys, and they're able to come into the room and play some games for us. And and uh, I mean, all these games are, right now are important coming down the stretch. And when they come to our team, they're playing meaningful games and, and trying to get us back in the playoffs and and have a chance to win. So uh, I mean, I think just playing the meaningful games definitely helps. To that point with Hunwick, was he kind of robbed of some of those moments because he was injured earlier in the season? Yeah, so far, but uh, I mean, it's good to see him back playing. He, he had a good couple games for us, and uh, he's a he's a player that I mean, I love seeing him out there, and he's uh, such a good skater and such a strong player that uh, I mean, it's good to see him playing. And obviously, he's dealt with some injuries this year, and it's it's good to see him healthy. If no moves are made, are you guys happy as a team where you are moving forward? Uh, I think so. I mean, we have confidence in the group. We're playing our best hockey right now, and. Um, whatever happens, happens. Obviously, it's out of our control, but I mean, right now, uh, we're playing some of the best hockey of the year. It's a good time here to lots of practice time over the past few days to get any bugs worked out moving forward for the stretch run. Yeah, it was nice uh, not having a game, uh, not having to travel, and being able to be home and get some things done for a little while. Obviously, we didn't practice yesterday, practice today, so it's good to uh, kind of get back at it today and, and get back to playing hockey tomorrow. All right, so thanks to Brian Dumoulin. Uh, just to follow up on what Jesse Marshall said about the line combinations from The Athletic, Jesse said that if they don't go out and get themselves either Grabner or Broussard, this is how he would shake out the lines going in the playoffs. Sid between Gensel and Sheary, Haglin and Horncrest around Malkin, uh, Sheehan between Z.A.R. and Kessel, then Rust, whoever the fourth-line center is, and whatever winger you want to put in there. Um, I wouldn't quite shake it out that way, and this is why. I think what we have seen in recent years, last two seasons for the Penguins, when they found momentum with line combinations, especially with these young guys call, coming up from Wilkes-Barre, it's easier to keep it going than it is to find it again. Does that make any sense? Like, it's easy. It was easier to keep the momentum with Gensel last year than it was to find it again with Sherry, in essence. And, like, right now they've got it with Z.A.R. So I would leave him with Sid until the time comes that he shouldn't be left with Sid anymore. Plus, I think for all the comps we make between him and Hornquist, I actually think he plays more like a younger Kunitz. Kunitz before he was a veteran and established and mean and nasty, like in a good way. I love that about Kunitz's game. That's the one thing ZR doesn't have yet that resembles Kunitz is that pugnacious, nasty attitude. He hasn't shown much of that yet. He will, I think, when he becomes more of a veteran. But aside from that, I think playing him and Gensel with Sid would be smarter. And then I, I, I guess you put Sherry and Rust on the fourth line together around center X and just hope 
that you get some sort of offense from them or some sort of connection with those two playing together on the wing in a similar manner and let the center be damned. The the only other option that I can think of is you put Carter Rowney in there as a wing alongside the centerman or Kunakel because of his PK ability, and you scratch Sherry. I think Sherry is more valuable right now as a cap-movable asset than he is perhaps even as a player. I mean, we'll see. But just something to consider. And then you could always move Aston Reese down, and then you've got two guys who play similarly enough in Rust and him and whoever the centerman is for that fourth line, and you can move somebody else up to play with Crosby. I know they they seem to like Simone more than I do, and I seem to like Sprong more than they do, and I don't get why. All right, best segment of the week is always Thursday in the 6 o'clock hour when I'm on. Now Adam comes on with me next.